So let me start off by saying the success of any implementation framework depends on its ability to work within the monetary, uh, the money market ecosystem to achieve interest rate control. For many years, the Fed funds rate has remained within the committee's target range on almost all occasions and has been responsive to changes in administered rates, including when the committee raised its target range this year. The Fed funds rate has also remained correlated with other overnight rates, a hallmark of effective interest rate control. I would highlight three ways in which the ample reserves regime's flexibility helps it adapt. First, it aims to supply reserves in the amount demanded by banks to meet their liquidity needs. Following the global financial crisis, banks fundamentally altered their liquidity management practices, and the largest banks now hold much bigger liquidity buffers. Although banks can hold a range of high-quality liquid assets, reserves are the safest and most liquid asset to meet immediate outflows. Supplying reserves in the quantities demanded ensures that administered rates provide strong incentives in money markets. Banks' demand for reserves can vary over time and direct trading between banks, which can quickly redistribute reserves, has become less favored by many institutions. These dynamics suggest that maintaining ample conditions requires supplying reserves somewhat in excess of the amount that individual banks would minimally want to hold on a typical day. Second, the ample reserves regime allows for more variability in the Fed's other liabilities, which helps maintain rate control when shifts in these liabilities change the supply of reserves. The U.S. Treasury's account in particular can vary significantly, and the framework can accommodate such swings without active management of reserves. Third, the ample reserves regime can accommodate policies that expand the Fed's balance sheet. For example, asset purchases to foster accommodative financial conditions are now a standard tool of policy employed when the Fed funds rate is constrained by the effective lower bound. The committee's ample reserves framework has been resilient during the extraordinary period associated with the pandemic, providing effective rate control when the balance sheet grew from $4 trillion to nearly $9 trillion. During this period, interest on reserve balances and the overnight RRP work together to support rate control and growth in the ONRRP balances broadened the base of Fed liability holders beyond banks. Nonetheless, the substantial expansion in Fed liabilities since the pandemic is not a permanent feature of the framework, but a result of balance sheet policies employed to support the economy during a time of exceptional stress in financial markets and a deep economic downturn. It's the path to a smaller balance sheet that I would like to discuss next. Early this year, the committee issued principles for significantly reducing the size of the balance sheet as part of its plans to tighten the stance of monetary policy. And in June, the committee commenced runoff. An increase in the pace of balance sheet reduction is underway with monthly redemptions under caps of $60 billion for treasuries and $35 billion for agency MBS. The decline in SOMA can be tracked through public data sources, as described in a New York Fed post published this morning. The Fed has prior experience reducing the size of its balance sheet. Between 2017 and 2019, the balance sheet shrank by $700 billion. This runoff proceeded smoothly during the period when reserves were ample. 
However, the Fed's balance sheet is considerably larger than it was then, and the pace of runoff will be faster. The composition of liabilities is also different. Current ONRRP balances are around $2.2 trillion, much larger than the roughly $125 billion at the start of the last balance sheet reduction. This different composition in liabilities is likely to require more complex adjustments in private sector balance sheets than during the last ep episode. However, just as use of the ONRRP expanded as the balance sheet grew, shifts in money markets that accompany balance sheet runoff, along with incentives provided by administered rates, should result in ONRRP balances declining from current levels over time. The relative pace at which reserves and ONRRP balances decline will depend on the actions of a broad range of money market participants. And these adjustments are likely to take time to play out. While ONRRP balances may remain elevated in the near term, we are already observing some modest shifts in money markets. As a repo investment, Balances in the ONRRP are influenced by the relative yields on alternative money market instruments. Over the first half of the year, declining treasury bill supply and uncertainty about the path of policy put downward pressure on very short-term rates relative to the ONRRP rate, increasing the demand for the facility. In coming months, the supply of short-term investments may grow. Net Treasury bill issuance has increased by about $250 billion from its trough this summer, easing downward pressure on rates, and bill supply is projected to rise modestly through year-end. Over time, the faster pace of SOMA run runoff may also expand money market investments by increasing the amount of securities funded in repo markets. Over time, greater certainty about the economic outlook and the path of policy may also moderate demand for the ONRRP. The weighted average maturity of government money funds has fallen notably in recent months as funds limited their interest rate risk. As the outlook becomes more clear, demand for very short-term instruments should moderate. Banks also have an important role to play in the relative decline in reserves and the ONRRP as they respond to the changing environment by shifting their liability management. Year to date, reserves have declined by a little more than 900 billion as many banks felt comfortable allowing their balances to fall. With 3.1 trillion in reserves still in the system, most banks continue to maintain significant amounts of liquidity. However, in the current environment of rapidly rising short-term rates and expanding loan demand, there are some signs of greater competition for deposits and an increase in wholesale borrowing by some banks. Changes in behavior by banks have a broad influence across money markets. Greater advanced demand lifts FHLB borrowing and expands the supply of money market investments. So far this year, FHLB discount notes outstanding have increased by around $230 billion. Higher deposit rates may also make bank deposits more attractive to investors. And over time, these dynamics should help draw funds out of the overnight RRP. Overall, as the Fed's balance sheet declines, 
I expect money market rates to rise relative to the ONRRP rate and for market participants to shift investments away from the facility over time, moderating the decline in reserves. The pace of this adjustment may occur at different rates across different institutions, depending on their responsiveness to changing conditions. Staff at the Fed will closely monitor money markets to help assess whether these adjustments are proceeding smoothly. Ultimately, the committee has stated its intention to slow and then stop the decline in the Fed's balance sheet when reserves are somewhat above the level it judges to be consistent with ample reserves. As I noted before, the level of reserves needed to maintain ample conditions is uncertain and varies over time. Bank balance sheets have grown markedly since the beginning of the pandemic, but it's unclear the degree to which banks' reserve demand has also shifted. In the most recent senior financial officer survey, around 40% of banks suggested that the lowest level of reserves they would seek to maintain has increased since 2019. But nearly all of the remainder suggested that it stayed around the same. The committee has indicated that money market conditions will be an important gauge of when reserves are approaching the ample level. Staff will monitor a broad range of money market indicators. In addition, the standing repo facility is now available, along with the discount window, to address any shocks that may unexpectedly arise. I appreciate the opportunity to share some reflections on the Fed's operating framework. In recent years, the ample reserves regime has supported the committee's ability to address the extraordinary shock from the pandemic. I expect that it will support effective policy implementation as the balance sheet declines and going forward. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the panel discussion that comes next. Thank you so much, Patricia. Uh, now to go to the panel portion, uh, we're gonna start with Kevin Warsh. He was a Fed governor from 2006 to 2011. Uh, he's now at Stanford. Kevin, the floor is yours. Uh, th thanks very much, Neil. Uh, and thank you to Jim and the team at Cato for assembling us uh, one more time. Uh, this is the most recent Cato conference, and as I can think about the conferences of the last decade or so, I can't help but think that some of the admonitions and recommendations that have been given, had they been put in place the last several years, we'd find ourselves in better shape. I think what Patricia admirably did there, Neil, was she, was she described the technical, operational uh, uh, design features of the Fed's regime, what I'll try to do is complement that a little bit by talking about the architecture, by talking about the new monetary framework that uh, the Powell Fed's put in place uh, for my own sort of views on that. I think first off, I think we should acknowledge the obvious, which is the Fed and inflation are on rather bad terms with one another. The gulf between central bank promises and the reality is as wide as I can ever recall. And the amazing thing about inflation is it's harming the real economy, but inflation harms the economy differently than many other things because it camouflages its own weakness. It appears as though nominal revenue growth for companies is fine, consumers are spending, but those are, of course, all in nominal terms. Inflation is the bigger threat to the US and the global economy than interest rates. And the Fed, as recently as a couple of weeks ago in Jackson Hole, seems to have, got, have gotten that uh, uh, figured out. Many of, us, many of us have spoken about uh, the risks of this current architecture in recent years. 
And I'll take the discussion today as our continued duty to speak clearly about this institution we hold dear. It's really up to Patricia and her colleagues at the FOMC whether this is a revenge of history moment, whether history will repeat itself or whether we will have learned lessons of the last decade and really of the more recent financial and business cycle. The American people are forgiving of those in power so long as the system advances the public interest. But to the extent that it doesn't, um, the challenges for the Fed and other institutions will be paramount. From where I sit, Neil, it appears that we have all the makings of a global recession. But from this moment, I see both more hope and danger than at any point really since the 1970s. Uh, former Fed chairman, Neil, that you've interviewed uh, frequently, often say that economic recoveries don't die of old age. And I think that's true. They're typically killed, and they're typically killed by substantial policy error. And it's up to us and those that are in power right now to decide whether this policy error is enough to do substantial harm to the economy. On the architecture front, there's two sources of policy error that are much discussed. Um, I wanna dismiss those before going to the architecture they put in place. The first explanation is, well, the Fed knew better over the last couple of years, but it was politics that kept them from doing the right thing. Uh, I don't agree with that view. First, my experience at the Fed is that politics don't find its way into that room. And the other piece of that that I find a little troublesome is that somehow the Fed knew better a year or two years ago, and I don't see very much evidence for that. I think the second common explanation we hear about the Fed's current architecture is the Fed made a single bad decision, say a year ago in Jackson Hole when they said this inflation is transitory and it will come and go. Um, I don't believe that the problems that confront the US and the global economy are because of one misjudgment or one bad bit of timing. Instead, I think the Fed error is principally about sources and methods of the central bank to conduct its affairs. It's principally about the monetary framework that is in place, of which Patricia talked about the operating system that flows from it. And so just to put a fine point on the problem in the sources and methods the Fed's put in place, we can look back to the Jackson Hole uh, regime that was put in place in August of 2020, just a couple of years ago. And in my view, that was a catalyst. That was the triggering event for the, for the surge in prices from which we're suffering. Of course, as we all know, they put in place something called uh, fair average inflation targeting, but that was the shiny object. It strikes me the most consequential thing that they did then, which many of us spoke about, is they announced a new regime in which they basically said, we're going to ditch the idea of long and variable lags. If there was anything that academics at think tanks like this could have agreed upon in the last 40 years in the conduct of monetary policy, is that monetary policy works with these long and variable lags. Well, not so much and not anymore, the Fed said in their new architecture a couple of years ago. Policy they promised us would be inert until they fully achieved all of their objectives. Uh, they also told us that they would be data dependent. But as the data came in with inflation running hot for a very long time, they dismissed it at Jackson Hole just a year ago and said it was temporary. Those were among the failings of a new regime which they trotted out, which they said was a revolutionary new regime, an important change in policy. And that is, I think, indicative of the sources and methods of error they put into place. But I think that's just indicative. As I said, that was the catalyst. 
So let me, before I turn it back to you, Neil, see if I can nail down, I think, the four areas, uh, the four errors of this new monetary policy framework, which, which are worth our discussion. And the first bucket is an intellectual error. There have been intellectual delusions around central banking and around the economics profession in the last decade or so that threaten common sense. I think Mervyn King spoke to it quite ably in the last panel. Uh, inflation wasn't low for the period of the great moderation or even the period between the 08 crisis and the 2020 crisis because the Fed ordered it so. I know of no particular theory that gives the Fed credit for moderate inflation over the prior 30 years, but somehow absolves it of the inflation that we're suffering from now. I think at core in this intellectual error, um, the Fed had to acknowledge in recent months that they do not have a clear theoretical or empirical understanding of the drivers of inflation. There seems to be great confusion about whether the inflation that we find ourselves with is structural or cyclical, whether it's born of domestic uh, sources or comes from abroad. There seems to be a great aversion to the role of money. There seems to have been scant attention paid to the supply side of the economy. And instead, they seem to have been chasing this deity of R star, this neutral interest rate, which is unobservable and moves in response to policy. But those aren't the only intellectual errors that I think are the architecture of the last several years. I think the, the famed Lucas critique is applicable here as well. The Fed changed operating regimes in August of 2020, but they acted as though the inflation and output would act in this cycle much as it had in prior cycles. The reverence for their own models, especially the DS, DSGE models, which were referenced to the prior panel, are indicative of the idea that they didn't take the Lucas critique as seriously as they should have. They claim that there is a, uh, that they've been focused on imbalances. Monetary policy reports, financial stability reports for years have said that there are really no material imbalances in the economy. But when one restricts supply and subsidizes demand, inflation manifests itself. And the inflation we're seeing the US and the global economy is, if nothing else, a result of material imbalances. So that's the first bucket of intellectual errors, Neil. The second bucket, institutional errors. The Fed's ambitions appear to exceed its mandate. Um, while even this morning, Chairman Powell said that he stays out of the business of fiscal policy, and I think he dutifully tries to do so. But if we look at the game tape, the Fed weighed in in fiscal policy in a very substantial degree. Uh, not only in the darkest days of the, of the 2020 pandemic, but in plenty of periods since. There's a kind of institutional vanity that comes when any institution wanders outside of their remit. There are injustices everywhere in the world, and the Fed has decided in recent years to opine on many of those injustices. That's one thing, but it's quite another to suggest that they have the tools and the operating system to do much about it. Well, many of the things that the Fed has talked about are, are worthy, uh, are noble objectives and are worthy of massive improvement. It strikes me there's been a signal to households and businesses that the institution could be wandering from its principal objective of price stability. Being a central banker, and especially being the Federal Reserve, the most important of central banks, requires a resistance to whims, a resistance to fads and trends, no matter how worthy. 
So that institutional error strikes me, Neil, as the second broad set of, of concerns that need to be remedied to solve the price stability problems going forward. And just two more before I turn back to you. The third is an operational or organizational uh, set of errors. Uh, I can't but help but notice, and I'm sure most of the people listening here, the amazing amount of talent at the Federal Reserve as evidenced from Patricia and the people that guys like Vince and I know around the FOMC. But somehow the sum is delivering considerably less than its parts. How could it be that merely 18 months ago, nobody in that room at the FOMC and the monetary policy deliberations thought there to be a single rate increase in Fed funds until 2024? How could it be that about a year ago, only uh, there was only an expectation of one 25 basis point increase in Fed funds in the year 2022? My view is it can't be. Those were the numbers that were put forward in the summary of economic projections, but the diversity of views in that room is much broader than that. And I believe that it's an organizational reform that's necessary that can give air to the breadth of those views rather than keeping them in conformity. The best work on this subject was been done by Cass Sunstein, Cass Sunstein and Tim Curran in language they describe as an availability cascade, where they describe a self-reinforcing cycle that explains the development of certain beliefs that go increasingly unquestioned. And it strikes me that is among the reasons why we have the problems that we do. Given this proliferation of objectives for the Fed, ultimately what they chose to do in this new architecture was they chose strategic ambiguity and tactical clarity. And I think they've got that precisely wrong. The strategic, the strategic objective should be totally clear. Congress gave them the objective to ensure price stability and full employment. And they've had to acknowledge in recent years that price stability is the sine qua non of full employment. You can't have full employment with this kind of price instability. So the strategic ambiguity should be replaced with strategic clarity. And what about tactics? They've been very clear on their tactics. That's what forward guidance has been all about. But they've created so much transparency about their very next move, even as much as their move next week, that I think it's made it harder for them to navigate this changing terrain. And it explains why, while they might have acknowledged that they had the wrong policy last winter, it was not until March of this year, even as, as early as early March of this year, interest rates were still zero and they were still adding to the balance sheet that Patricia talked about. This sort of tactics has made it more difficult them, for them to do their jobs. And it strikes me that transparency is quite important. What's, what's more important is getting policy right. And finally, if I think about the new architecture under this new regime, I think it fails from a fourth bucket of, of of issues, and those are around risk management. They engaged in a, in a policy of regime change under the Powell Fed because they were, in their own uh, judgment, missing their inflation target by about three-tenths of 1%. That is, inflation was running at around 1.7% instead of 2.0%. And they went on to claim that this low level of inflation, this miss, was, quote, the greatest challenge for this generation of central bankers. Um, I think that that's a problem of risk management. 
if missing an inflation target by three tenths, when we can barely calculate to the right of the decimal point what's happening in the US economy, and can be certainly imprecise about the level of inflation at any point, it strikes me that um, we're not measuring risks correctly. Ultimately, the job of the central bank is, as Milton Friedman reminded us 40 years ago, is to minimize what he called substantial deviations in output and inflation from our objectives. And that three-tenths of 1% from which we changed operating regimes is not, in my judgment, anywhere near substantial. Ultimately, the Fed put too much emphasis on modes and not enough, not, not enough emphasis on risks. And ultimately, if we think about the response to this inflation scare, it looks to me quite slow in comparison to the reaction of the scares they had in 2008 and 2020. And so again, had they acted sooner with a better risk management framework, I think we could have uh, avoided some of these substantial problems. So in closing, Neil, I'll put it back to you, but say we saw a regime change in the conduct of monetary policy a few years ago. It will require another wholesale regime change in the conduct of policy to get out of this new period of price instability. And I'm hopeful that what we heard from the chairman at Jackson Hole about 10 days ago is indicative of that new regime change. I struggle to reconcile what was said in Jackson Hole from what was said at the FOMC meeting a few weeks before that. But if what we do is turn the page to a new regime in Jackson Hole and we follow it up over the course of the next several weeks and months, well, we can't mitigate the harm that's been done to this point. I think we can be on a far better path and try to live up to the objectives that Congress gave the Federal Reserve. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, we'll now hear from Vincent Reinhardt. He was uh, used to be the head of the Fed's Monetary Affairs Division. He's now chief economist and macro strategist at Dreyfus Mellon. Vincent. Uh, thank you, Neil. Uh, thank you, Neil. I think I successfully shared some uh, uh, um, uh, uh, presentation, which I'm going to go through very briefly. Uh, and everyone can hear me and everyone can see this. Okay, thank you. So thanks. Thanks for that uh, reassurance. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to participate once again in this Cato Monetary Policy Conference. And I want to commend the organizers for combining a discussion of the Fed's framework, i.e. policy in the large, and the operating system policy in the small, because they share a design flaw. Uh, uh, that's derived from the Fed's flawed understanding of what happened to us in the pandemic. So it's really not surprising if you get the big thing wrong that it shows up elsewhere. And that's why my conversation is gonna be the Fed's flawed choices in the large, in the small, and technically under the law. And what's the big thing? Um, the big thing is the Fed was totally focused on the management of aggregate demand, even though the other discretionary authority was more than overstimulating it. And the pandemic was actually a sectoral shock. Uh, in that regard, I'm turning to uh, the next page, page two. The response to the pandemic was a withdrawal from market activity. 
Some of it was voluntary as people were worried about health outcomes. Some of it was mandated by the government, also worried about husbanding health resources and its own reputation. That meant it was a withdrawal from market activity, both as producers and purchasers of goods and services. Let's note the components. That means it hit both supply and demand, and it hit sectorally goods and services. Uh, and in fact, it did so to an uneven amount and to a different extent over time. Now, note the important difference between goods and services. Services tend to be more personal and extend exposure to providers, i.e. think of the hairdresser, and are complementary to much of other service activity, i.e. think of the transit worker and the person who serves, serves the coffee to go. Both services and goods were hit hard, but services employ four-fifths of the workforce. And the hit there was a more consequential for economic activity. There's a couple other important differences. Uh, the first is services are of the moment, right? They only turn into output if there is supply to meet demand. Moreover, services can't come from inventories and can't come from abroad. So the sectoral shock, because of what it did to workers' incentives and what governments told workers, sets up this problem for the Federal Reserve. And it, in two regards, in the large, the Fed viewed this as a problem in the management of aggregate demand, but not ne neglected the ongoing fiscal replacement to aggregate demand, and it also neglected the sectoral incidents. Left panel addresses the fiscal impetus, which was immediate and massive. Yeah, so much for the, the recognition and implementation lags that you read about in textbooks. The left panel plots four quarter real gross domestic product and four quarter real disposable personal income. And look at the first half of 2020. GDP contracted near at a double digit rate but real disposable income increased at a double digit pace. So as a nation, this was the largest gap ever between what we produced and what we gave ourselves, i.e. aggregate demand was provided by the fiscal authority. Moreover, aggregate demand replacement really shouldn't have been the problem, and that's about the right uh, panel. Why? Serve, supply of services just weren't there as workers withdrew from market activity. So extra income was either saved or fell onto goods demand. And we see that the smaller portion of our economy that produces goods actually produced well above trend or, or sold well above trend. Goods demand increased markedly because of the extra income and the inability to spend it on services, 
because services fell well below trend and stayed well below trend on a persistent basis. There was something like a two percentage point shift in the household consumption basket, which is massive. So macro policy dislodged the ongoing trend in goods, goods consumption relative to services consumption. The support to goods demand, which could be met by pressing on supply, that is inventory from inventory, in, in getting it from inventories and, 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 and abroad, dislodged the decade-long trend in relative prices. The upper panel plots the absolute price index for goods, that's the red line, services, the blue, uh, rather, uh, that's the blue line is goods, uh, services are red, red, and the total is the darker line. Look at the light blue line over the last 20 years. The level of goods prices just before the pandemic was the same as it was in 2008. In most of this 20-year span, the average inflation rate of goods prices is close to zero. Three quarters of the years, it's wet, it is it is below the Fed's goal of 2%. If you have goods prices inflation pulling down the total, you can allow service inflation to be above the goal. That was the wind under the wings of the new monetary framework. When three-tenths of the price basket is pulling inflation below goal, the Fed could run the economy hot and let service inflation go above goal. Hence, the framework that, that Kevin talked about rolled out with great fanfare in 2020 was one-sided, was admitted overshooting, and was complacent about misses by emphasizing historical averages when you would have thought bygones were bygones. Also, the two-decade experience explains why the recognition lag was so long. If you always expected goods inflation to pull down the total, then you might be on team transitory. But goods inflation was adding to the total, having propped up overall demand for goods. The Fed basically allowed inflation to creep in to the more persistent component. And not just allowed it, allowed it big time. Look how high goods inflation is now relative to the total. That is, is what has to be um, a pushback against. Now, uh, with regard to the implementation of, you know, implementation of policy, I do want to emphasize two parts. Um, and that policy support obviously was support, the support to aggregate demand was both conventional and unconventional. By this time, unfortunately, we really have to put air quotes around the unconventional uh, because it has become uh, commonplace. I admit, full disclosure, when we wrote with Ben Bernanke about how to do unconventional policy 20 years ago, we didn't think it would become commonplace. And we neglected to include the, the sections on the risks to the policy and how to exit the policy. That's consequential now. This chart's a one-stop shop for thinking about 
the, the, the stance of monetary policy. The vertical axis is the size of the Fed's balance sheet, i.e. unconventional policy. Horizontal axis is the federal funds rate, conventional policy, inverted though. Inverted though. And so what that means going from the southwest corner to the northeast is policy accommodation. You're cutting the policy rate and you are amping up the size of the balance sheet. The lack of recognition about the sec about sectors, the concern that it was all about overall assets, the amount of reserves and making sure they were ample, led the Fed to neglect the sectoral aspects of what it was adding to the balance sheet. That is, the way in didn't account for the way out because of what they were buying, nor what, what they were buying, how what they were buying was affecting what they were seeing and what was happening in, in sectors of the economy. This chart looks at just the, the Fed's, a snapshot at the end of 2019 of the Fed's balance sheet and the total, the total market share, and also the Fed's share of the total. The important things in yellow, how much of the overall net issuance did the Fed buy in its quantitative easing? The answer is uh, a, a large share of everything, but an increasingly large share as you get more illiquid. The Fed bought indexed, uh, inflation indexed securities more than the Treasury issued on that, and mortgage-backed securities, four-fifths of the total issuance. Those securities trade in illiquid markets. With regard to the inflation index securities, it's not obvious why the central bank should be protected from inflation, nor should the Fed should the central bank be muddying the waters for a market in which it says it gets important readings on real rates and inflation compensation. And the purchase of mortgage-backed securities further, uh, further overheated a market that was already heat overheated. It was an encouragement to a goods demand where the problem wasn't goods demand, i.e. notice the increase in house prices at the right. One last point, um, and the Fed emphasizes in everything about how aggressive the way out is, i.e. the red, the red line in the chart, the one-stop shop, shop, uh, shop on monetary policy. Because the baseline is expressed, as, 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 as Pat said at the left, the Fed is limiting the amount of securities it rolls over at auctions so that the balance sheet shrinks over time. I, however, have a question for you, and that is when you look at the Federal Reserve Act, why is the Fed participating in auctions to begin with? The Federal Reserve Act says, places the limitation that principal and interest may be bought and sold with rega without regard to maturities, but only in the open market. But by saying that the Fed can roll over maturing obligations at treasury auctions, it sets up a, 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 it frames the baseline as the aggressive decision not to roll over every, everything. But an originalist reading of the Federal Reserve Act would lead us to conclude everything should get rolled over. And as a consequence, it would be a larger amount, and then the Fed would have to make a decision whether to do open market 
significant operations to replace some of what would be rolled over, i.e. they'd have a much harder discussion as to why it was purchasing assets in the secondary market at the same time it was raising the policy rate and emphasizing it was shrinking the amount of reserves. Because it rolls over securities at the auctions, it gets to do that behind the, behind the curtain. Uh, those are my remarks, and thank you. Thanks so much, Vince. Uh, before we go to George, uh, just a reminder, if you have questions, uh, you can uh, put them in on Twitter with the hashtag CatoMonCon or on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Slido on the uh, chat boxes in the Cato website. Um, uh, George Selgin is a senior fellow at Cato. Let's, uh, let's hear from George. Thanks, Neil. Uh, I'm, uh, and thank you all for uh, this opportunity to speak uh, about uh, the Fed's operating system. My topic is more or less the same uh, topic that uh, Patricia Sobel uh, was speaking on, uh, but my take on it is going to be a little, a little less uh, uh, sanguine. Uh, many of you know Walter Badgett as the author of uh, Lombard Street, a book that uh, outlined the principles of last resort lending. Uh, some years before he wrote that book, uh, Badgett wrote the English Constitution. And in that book, he noted how England, instead of having designed its constitution from scratch the way we did, uh, really just stumbled onto it uh, over time. Uh, but that didn't keep the English Constitution from being uh, uh, something that, according to Badgett, worked more simply and easily and better than any instrument of government that has yet been tried. Well, uh, the Fed's floor operating system resembles the English constitution in that it is also something that the Federal Reserve stumbled on. It, it didn't really plan to adopt it. It adopted it more or less accidentally in 2008. But that's where the resemblance ends because uh, the floor system has not turned out to be simpler than the previous uh, corridor type system that the Fed had relied upon for a quarter century. It's turned out not to be easier in any other respects or otherwise better than that uh, system or than other alternatives that uh, might have been adopted and that might still be adopted in its place. And I want to explain with my remaining time uh, why I believe all of these things. Uh, first, a quick review of the difference between a floor operating system and a corridor operating system. These are both arrangements uh, through which the Fed establishes its own uh, interest rate target uh, and tries to uh, reach that target. And then, of course, if it does, the interest rate that it targets will also determine more or less uh, the setting of other interest rates throughout the economy. In a corridor type system of which we had a version before 2008 in place, uh, the Fed regulates uh, the interest, its interest rate by altering the scarcity of reserves in the banking system. Reserves are scarce in a corridor system. That is, banks don't generally have more than they need to stay liquid. And uh, by altering the available supply of reserves through open market 
purchases and sales. The Fed can make them more or less scarce at the margin. And as a result, uh, banks will be willing to bid for uh, higher prices to acquire reserves or lower prices as the case may be. And the idea is that by manipulating the quantity of reserves, the Federal Reserve can get the overnight interest rate or federal funds rate target just where it wants it. In a, in a floor system, in contrast, uh, the Fed supplies banks with large quantities of reserves, with abundant reserves. Reserves are not scarce in that system. In turn, the Federal Reserve pays an interest rate on reserves that's actually equal to, this is in theory, in, a per, in an orthodox floor system, equal to its target rate. And the idea is that if you pay banks an interest rate on reserves equal to the target overnight rate, then with an ample reserve system, that uh, rate of interest on reserves will, through arbitrage, establish all other interest rates. So in, on paper, a floor system is very simple. You, make, you give banks plenty of reserves, you pay whatever your target rate is on those reserves, arbitrage takes care of the rest, set it and forget it. <clears throat> well, as I said, uh, the floor system that we have in place wasn't designed uh, uh, very carefully from the start. It's something that was stumbled up upon during the great financial crisis. Briefly, the story is this. Uh, the Federal Reserve was uh, engaging early in that crisis in a, a large amount of emergency lending. And it was not, it was trying not to have interest rates fall below a target it had established at that time, despite the reserves it was creating, large quantities of reserves through those emergency loans. At first, it engaged in uh, sterilization of its lending, which meant it sold off other assets on its balance sheet as it increased its emergency loans. Eventually, though, those other assets, treasury securities mainly, uh, began to, uh, it began to reach low levels of those. It had to do something else. It started paying interest on reserves as an alternative to get banks to hold on to the reserves it was creating with its emergency loans. At the time, some people inside the Fed said, you know, if we keep doing this, we might end up on a floor operating system. And others said, well, we'll deal with that <laughs> if it happens. And the way they de dealt with it was to make uh, a floor operating system to stick to that system, making it official in January 2019. So I say all this by way of saying, you know, when you stumble on something, it could work out well, as it did in the case of the English Constitution, according to Badgett, but sometimes it doesn't. And in this case, in the Fed's case, and uh, I don't think it did. Uh, now, Fed officials did argue that this switch was a desirable one because it kept things simple. Uh, Bill Dudley in April 2018 said the floor system is, quote, operationally much less complex than a corridor system because, quote, the setting of the interest rate on reserves is largely sufficient to maintain the federal funds rate in the FOMC's target range. So there you have the theory again. Well, in practice, has it been sufficient? Hardly, hardly. In fact, the thing has had to be uh, uh, supplemented by all kinds of fixes and, and uh, uh, amendments 
uh, that uh, now make it look kind of like a Rube Goldberg <laughs> contraption. I just want to go through some of these other things that Fed has had to do to make its uh, floor system do what it was supposed to do so easily. Back in 2014, the Fed had to establish, to establish its overnight reverse repo per, uh, uh, purchase facility. Uh, that's because the interest rate, the overnight rate, tended to sag below the bottom of the Fed's target range. Despite, instead of being, as it were, propped up by interest on reserves, what the overnight repurchase, a reverse repurchase facility does is essentially to create a subfloor beneath the floor of the interest rate on reserves that non banks can access, non bank counterparties, including especially money market mutual funds. Now, at first, this, uh, this overnight repurchase, uh, reverse repurchase facility was used rather, rather moderately, but over time, it's become more and more important. And now the Fed is engaging in about two and a half trillion dollars worth of overnight reverse repurchase operations daily, two and a half trillion, as opposed to a scale of ordinary open market uh, operations, uh, in this case, uh, uh, purchases of treasury securities before the crisis at a scale of about less than 20 billion a day, right? That's 20 billion versus two and a half trillion. Uh, and uh, right there, you have an indication of just how much more activity is involved in maintaining the current floor system. Uh, other tweaks include changes in the Federal Reserve's target interest rate range. Now, uh, it's pretty obvious that if you make the target range wider, you make it easier to hit the target as is any point within that range. Well, the Fed's had to widen that range several times. In theory, an orthodox floor system, you set the interest rate on reserves, and that's where your overnight interest rate will be. You shouldn't even have to have a range in order to hit the target. In practice, in the US, the way our system functions, the Fed not only had to start out with a range, it's had to expand the range through little tweaks in uh, consisting of uh, additions to the spread between the upper limit of the interest rate target range and the interest rate on reserves. It added a five, at five basis points to the spread in June 2018, another five in January 2019, another five in May 2019, and another five in November 2019. So you got 20 basis points of extra spread to play with because that's what they needed to do to make sure or to increase the odds of hitting their target rate. They've since reduced that spread a little bit, but back then 20, 20 basis points, that was almost 10% of the uh, going level of interest rates. So it's giving themselves a lot of extra uh, room to uh, play with. Most recently, in January 2022, they, the Fed had to set up a standing repo facility, an, a new standing facility, because uh, there was a problem of rates spiking above the upper level, the upper limit of their target range, even with all the tweaking that the Fed had done and, uh, and so now you have had to have a whole new facility to, to guard against those spikes, which become particularly important as the Fed is trying to 
reduce its balance sheet, unwind its balance sheet in the aftermath of quantitative easing operations. Well, let's talk about the balance sheet a little bit. When the Fed officials were first arguing the benefits of a corridor or of a floor system, they estimated that it might take about $35 billion of total reserves to maintain and operate such a system. That was about twice the level of reserves held under the old corridor system. Well, they've had to modify that estimate a few times since. In 2016, they decided they needed at least 100 billion. In 2017, the figure was 500 billion. In 2018, it was 600 billion. In 2019, 1.3 trillion. Today, as Patricia mentioned, the, the reserves outstanding are at about 3 billion. And I'll bet you anything, we never see 2 billion again. The problem here, as uh, some researchers have noted, is that banks tend to get used to having excess reserves and lo and behold, after they have them enough, they stop doing the kinds of things that they might've done in the past to economize on such reserves and also to prepare themselves in case a shortage should arise. So uh, a floor system becomes a kind of addictive arrangement where the more reserves banks are used to having at their disposal, the more they need. And this is why it tends to be very difficult to unwind and estimates about how low you can go end up becoming falsified. All right, then. Well, uh, let's talk in my last couple minutes uh, about whether the system is better. It's certainly not easier. It's certainly just as complicated. Uh, well, you have a number of factors here that make it far worse. One thing that a floor system has done is kill the overnight unsecured lending market, the interbank market. So banks don't monitor one another. They don't know which other banks can be relied upon to borrow from or lend to. to. And that has had an adverse effect on market discipline. The floor system has raised the costs of government funding because the interest rate on reserves is often higher than that of the treasury bills and other securities, uh, except long, very long-term ones that uh, might be used to fund government instead. The Fed is essentially swapping one kind of interest earning security for another when it creates reserves in the system. Uh, there's also the danger, which I've written about elsewhere, about a fiscal QE that under this arrangement, quantitative easing can be abused for political purposes. And I think that, uh, and that wouldn't be possible in a, in a corridor system where it could only be resorted to when it's absolutely necessary because interest rates have hit their zero lower bound. Uh, finally, uh, when we talk about whether this system is easier, the most obvious question we can ask is, well, is the Fed saving resources? If the system worked the way it was supposed to, there should be fewer people working at the New York Fed to keep interest rates on target. Now, Patricia isn't here any longer, but I wonder what, uh, I think I know the answer if I were to ask her whether they've cut back on their staff, researchers, or anything else connected with implementing and operating the floor system. If anything, I suspect they've got more people and more resources because it's a lot harder. The old system was not that hard. <laughs> they operated it for 25 years without much difficulty, in short, if, if operating systems were like used cars, I think the floor system would qualify as a lemon. And I think that all the promises made about its advantages 
when it was being sold to the public uh, would be would look like a, a bait and switch uh, scheme. I don't mean that the Fed intentionally misled people. I don't think that's true. But what does bother me is that to this day, as we saw earlier, the Fed continues to defend the system as if it was working exactly the way it was supposed to, as if it had all the benefits that Fed officials expected it to have long ago. It's time for the Fed and for the rest of us to be aware that this system is not a good system, that we could do better and we should try to do so. Thanks very much. Thank you, George. Um, Vincent, would you like to, to dive in and tell us what you agree or disagree with about, uh, about George's rather harsh assessment um, just now? Uh, so the first point I'd like to make with regard to the ant, uh, what George identified really as the ratchet effect of ample reserves, what we defined as ample got bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, he, he, uh, you know, George, you said, well, banks get used to it. I think regulators and examiners get even more used to it and expect to see it on, on bank balance sheets and in that environment, uh, think how useful, especially they are in stress tests, which are where, where the money is with regard to decisions on capital adequacy and the ability to, for banks to buy back shares and pay dividends. So uh, ample reserves are not set they are determined not just by banks, but by the regulatory system. And the regulatory system isn't just a, a, a set of rules and rules. It's, the, it's, it's how it's in, interpreted and enforced in the field. Uh, a second part of it is, um, I, you know, to, to me, I think, I, think in, uh, I always fall back to the defense of where the Fed now, is now to say, I think that's what Milton Friedman wanted, uh, that uh, in, a, in an environment in which uh, the cost of making reserves, it, the marginal cost for the Federal Reserve is, uh, for making additional reserves is zero. Uh, why do you have banks accommodate on holding reserves? Well, make, make the cost zero. Uh, you don't want, however, since it influences market rates generally, uh, the alter well, the alternative to accomplish that is to pay interest on reserves. That goes back to the you know the the Bach Commission in in, 19, in the year, in the early 1960s. Uh, so I get it, I, and I think to George's point, uh, um, uh, quoting from Bashirteth from the very beginning, is we haven't had a systematic discussion of this. I, it's just sort of happened and evolved. We're doing, doing it because it was a set of instructions last time that got amended and that'll get amended. And I think what we really need is a serious rethink. I'm not convinced, however, that rethink would necessarily move, um, uh, move the Fed from where it is. And then the last point, man, uh, I think some of it is also just the decline of the primary dealer system as we know it. The dealer system was the way that the Fed, the central bank intermediated daily liquidity to the rest of the banking system. But capital constraints, regulatory requirements just don't make it real attractive to be a, a primary dealer. How else can you do it? Well, how about you have shiny new tools where you can interact more directly with more of the banking system, importantly, including the reverse RP facility. Thanks. Uh, that's uh, it for me. 
I want to uh, pose a, a bit of a broader question that I'll send to, to Kevin first. Um, you know, in Jackson Hole a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think we heard a lot of discussion about uh, the possibility that these supply shocks we've been having the last couple of years, the pandemic, uh, the, the war in Ukraine, the uh, climate related problems, um, that, that this might be a new normal, that it might be a kind of recurring series of supply side shocks in contrast to the 2010s when uh, the problem was demand management and, and inadequate demand. Um, you know, whatever you think of the flexible average inflation targeting framework came out in August of 2020. It's pretty clear it was directed at what were viewed as the challenges of the 2010s, um, just at a, at a moment when things were changing. So, Kevin, first of all, if we are in a different uh, kind of global macro landscape, uh, is there a path forward to a to a new framework that that you know can can really make sense? You're muted. Yep, sorry about that. Um, I think there is a path forward. Remember policy and policy frameworks are supposed to be forward looking. They're not supposed to assume that the future will look exactly like the past. Uh, the Fed talks about the necessary, the necessity of humility and being nimble. And that means you need to have a broad framework that can adjust with the times as opposed to constraining yourself through an old regime made for a different moment or constraining yourself by continuing to come up with new projections, which we'll see next week, that will make it harder for the Fed to adjust to a series of shocks that could happen on the supplier demand side. Um, I think broadly, you're right in that the risks for, on the supply side in the period ahead are likely to be materially higher than one could have imagined a decade ago. If in some sense, the low inflation in the United States and around the world was a function not principally of interest rate policy, but was a function of demographics and what some people describe as one-worldism, globalization that brought new workers onto the playing field and new markets such that we could keep uh, to the charts that Vince showed, keeps good prices down over time. I think there's good reason to believe that that period is behind us. The world is breaking into different spheres of influence, separate and apart from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which probably only amplifies this effect. The world is building out new supply chains, new ways of doing business, and the world is developing a new, a new uh, financial system, which is not integrated from east to west, but is bifurcated. That transition is likely to be difficult for the supply side of the economy not just in financial markets, but more broadly in manufacturing and services and the movement of workers and data across borders. So I share your instinct, which is supply shocks are, are more likely to be more persistent. And the Fed needs to use this moment in time to be as dogmatic as they were 10 days ago. It would have been better if they were as dogmatic a, a long time before that says we will ensure price stability. And behind that uh, Jackson Hole remarks, they should be engaging in a lot of introspection across those four buckets that I described. So they are prepared to meet that moment with a new understanding of what's causing inflation and what they can do to ensure that the objectives given by Congress are lived up to. Thanks, we'll go to a couple of, uh, of your uh, questions. Uh, Walter asks on the event page, George, uh, people often critique politicians for pushing problems off on, fu uh, on future officials. Does that same thing happen to the Federal Reserve? Uh, it sounds like what you're describing uh, is that uh, some took notice of the floor system, other pushed it off. Is there a, uh, 
pushing the can down the road issue at, at afoot here? Well, that depends. Uh, I think uh, the as I see things so far, it doesn't look like many Fed officials see the floor system as a problem. I wish more would. If they do, uh, they're not admitting it. <laughs> so there are two phenomena that might be, either of which might be going on. Uh, one is the kick the can phenomenon that you mentioned, the, but the other one, which is uh, certainly important is the, the tendency for Fed officials uh, never to admit that it's made any mistakes. <laughs> this makes it observationally difficult to tell <laughs> whether, whether uh, a, a later generation of Fed officials feels that they've been saddled with something uh, that uh, with a problem that previous ones have created, you seldom find them saying as much. That's the, the issue. So I could speculate that there are uh, Fed officials out there who really wish the Fed hadn't done all of this, hadn't taken this route, but um, it's not easy to uncover proof that that has happened. Thanks. Uh, why don't I go to Vincent with this question? Gary uh, asks on the event page, how often is too often for the Fed or any central bank to change its framework? Uh, is it, is it, <laughs> I'm, I'm expanding on Gary's question, but is it, is it too soon to, uh, to think about uh, tossing out uh, flexible inflation targeting and start thinking about something new? Uh, so I would actually go back to George's point about whether you have a constitution or, or, or an oral tradition. The Fed's mandate is maximum employment and stable prices. It doesn't op the law doesn't operationalize it. And so what the Fed FOMC hoped it would do is by repeating the mission statement often enough, it would become the rule of law because it was tradition. I.e., if you keep saying 2% is the goal, then it's going to be harder and harder for the next committee to not have 2% as a goal. Because in principle, just like any legislative body, the FOMC re reforms itself every year and they could make up whatever they want each year. So the mission statement, the framework is supposed to, by the force of tradition, impose what the Congress is unwilling to do so. So to me, that means you never change it. They would have been better off if they just stuck to the Volcker Greenspan definition of price stability as an environment in which the material, you know, material changes in the price level are not influencing the decision making of households and firms, and said that worked in the 80s and latter part of the 80s and the 90s. Let's just keep it. That would have been the force of tradition. So how soon is soon enough? To me, it's never. However, don't don't enshrine what they got now. Thanks. Uh, I kind of like this question from an anonymous user on the event page uh, to Kevin. Uh, can you expand on how we can keep the, the Lucas critique in mind when forming monetary policy responses? What did you mean by that? Sure. So, so um, part of the reason why I think the Fed was confident that inflation over the last several years would return to 2% is because when we look back on history, which is in, inherently in the model and the models that are the workhorse models at the Fed, inflation really since, since the mid-1980s has kept falling to 2%. So no matter what you do operationally in monetary or fiscal policy, 
In the model in the out years, you get back to an inflation target because you prescribed it and history, and history judged it. But what the Lucas critique reminds us of is that history will repeat itself or has a good chance of repeating itself if the operating regime repeats itself. If you change how you conduct policy, you change your objective function, you change your strategy, you change your tactics, there's no reason to think that the results in the model um, will be the same. In fact, they'll be quite different. So I think one way to think about that is to think about the workhorse models at the Fed instead of relying upon them for forecasts, instead of using those as the anchor for the summary of economic projections that we'll say next week, that we'll see next week, instead of taking that as though it is a, a very good forecast of a complicated global economy filled with shocks everywhere, we use the models to gain insight. We do alternative simulations to see what, what we could do such that we missed our goals instead of made our goals. We, we, we stress test the models instead of just stress testing the banks. And so we use the, those models in a way that are more informative and more illustrative. And what's that mean, Neil, for the conduct of policy? Instead of focusing so much of the discussions to the right of the decimal point, that inflation will be 2.0%, that somehow uh, economic growth in the next four corners will be X. We put the emphasis on the left side of the decimal point. We understand that we can't fine tune an economy that is stuck with these sorts of shocks that are going through these sorts of changes, not just a result of the war and COVID, but as a result of radical changes in how business and capital markets are flowing, in part because of the change in the great power competition between the US and China. So I think in that sense, what Vince and I talked about many years ago when we had on a uniform like Patricia's is what if we were to use fan charts that showed the variance of outcomes? What if we were to describe our emissions and the uncertainties around it? What if the risks around our forecast were to be what we talk about rather than the modal forecast itself? Those are the sorts of changes you'd need to be incorporating to recognize that when you change regimes, the outcomes are likely to change as well. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to combine a couple of questions for uh, for, for Vince. Um, is is there a, is there a right size for the Fed balance sheet? Is there at the kind of scale we're at now? Is it inherently going to fuel asset bubbles? Um, how would we even answer that question of of uh, what a what a right sized Fed balance sheet looks like as as the economy stabilizes? So the answer is there is no right answer. When uh, for Volcker, it was about 5% of nominal GDP. It peaked up, at, up close to 25% of, of nominal GDP. The right size of the balance sheet isn't about, really about the operating system. Depending on how you move your administered rates, you can take, take account of that. The right size of the balance sheet is really an ex, a question about the political economy i.e. a bigger balance sheet is the Federal Reserve creating fiscal space for the Treasury. Is that a job you want your central bank to be in? Uh, so on the economics, it's not a question about the economics of the balance sheet. It's a question about the political economy of the balance sheet. And I think that's why a lot of people are rightly worried when the balance sheet gets so big. If I may, I'd like to add to what uh, Vincent said there that uh, I, I really think it's an unappreciated virtue of a, a corridor type system that 
you can have quantitative easing when it's macroeconomically desirable, which is when interest rates hit their lower bound. In fact, uh, in that case, a corridor system becomes a floor system quite automatically, just when you need it to, because it's at that point that lowering interest rates in the usual fashion ceases to work. Whereas a, a floor system, it allows quantitative easing when there's no macroeconomic reason for it. And that means that politics can have a much greater bearing on the size of the balance sheet, typically by making it bigger than it ought to be or uh, might be. Uh, and, uh, and I see this as a very important disadvantage of, of a floor system. And let me uh, just, just say about section 14, which is the part I quoted going back to, the, if you read like Meltzer's history of the, of, of the Federal Reserve, there really was an originalist small Fed view. And what the law wrote in was automatic shrinkage of the balance sheet over time. Yeah. Uh, what the Fed interpreted, how the Fed interpreted the law gives them more discretion than I think the founders intended. And Neil, if I might just join in with a comment that I think uh, combines both George and Vince's statements. The, the, I think the operative question is that most of us believe that in times of exigent circumstances, that's what the Fed's role is, to stand in the breach uh, when there's a uh, shock like 2008 or 2020. And so most of us are open-minded then to uh, expanding the Fed balance sheet, providing liquidity and markets. The troubling part is there has to be some symmetry to that. During the long period between 2010 and 2020, there was plenty of openings for the speed and duration of those assets to be unwound. The concern as we look now is it looks like the balance sheet only really ratchets in one direct in direction. What I think many in financial markets believe is that Patricia and her team have begun a modest wind down of the Fed's balance sheet. But I suspect today the balance sheet is only about 2% smaller than it was at the peak of QE. And I think most people in financial markets who are quite attuned to the QEQT debate, they're of the view that the balance sheet might get smaller, but not a lot smaller. And when things turn bad, the balance sheet will grow orders of magnitude again. And so as I think about the balance sheet, I'm open-minded to an aggressive central bank on both interest rates and balance sheet expansion. But as a matter of risk management and as a political economy matter, as Vince said, the more the Fed has a permanent imprimatur, both on the economy and the financial markets, the more it's likely to find itself in harm's way over the course of the period ahead. And with that, we are out of time. Um, the, uh, we have a break now. The next session starts at 1.15 with Thomas Sargent. Uh, thank you, Kevin Warsh, George Seligan, Vincent Reinhardt, and Patricia Zobel. Uh, and uh, I'll be back at 1.15. Thanks.